This podcast is proudly produced by NZ Audio Editors. For all your editing services, you can find us on the World Wide Web. Greg Moyle and Ryan J. Melton from One Plan for Retirement would like to welcome you to the NZ Guide to Financial Freedom. This is not to be seen as personal advice as it is a podcast, but it will give you the tools you need to live the life you want to ensure you don't run out of money before you run out of life. So the main reason for the podcast is memoirs of a mentor. So it's really about one, showing the journey and what it takes to become obviously where you are and the understanding you have. But then also, it's quite hard to filter between what's good financial advice and what's someone just trying to push push the dollar, I suppose. So just, just to give a bit of background, I'm here with Greg Moyle. Um, but out of curiosity, Greg Moyle, what, what, what got you uh, into the industry? Like what was the, what drove you to actually be in it for 30 years? It was really an accident when, when you think about it because I'd left the police and finished up at the university with a, a law degree and I'd been teaching accounting at the university and found a position in the corporate fraud unit, the Justice Department. And I thought that's where I was always going to be because I was kind of interested in the, in the accounting role and linked into the investigatory role around fraud. But when I got to the Justice Department, I found that it was quite a frustrating environment to work in because you weren't properly resourced. And the people who came to me often weren't the victims of a fraud. They were the victims of greed and fear. They, they'd made investments based on the expectation of making money that was probably never going to be made and the fear of missing out on that. So that the... Various cases that I put um, at the end of the day, there wasn't a lot of support from the department. I think the department over the two years that I was there mounted something like seven major prosecutions, six of them were mine. And uh, the result, in fact, one of the results I was thinking about just the other day where a chap left his Cook Island community stranded at the airport in New Zealand, uh, unable to return to the Cook Islands because the plane that they thought he'd booked, well, with the money that they'd paid him, just didn't turn up. And uh, mm. when I finally got him convicted in the Otahu court, he basically got a fine of $1,000, which was like a, a slap with a checkbook, yeah, uh, as opposed to... Uh, you know, a bit of jail time, which he should have, I thought, got, given the amount of money that he'd effectively swindled from these people. But, of course, in relative terms, it didn't stack up because on the same day uh, at that court, there was a bloke convicted for soaring his son's head off. Mm. So I imagine that's actually a major, a more major event. <laughs> a bit more significant. But, yeah, a bit more significant. So I was doing that work and I wasn't really enjoying it. And I'd always thought that I wanted to be in a business where you could help people to help themselves. And an opportunity came along with a complaint from a lady saying that uh, she'd spoken to this financial advisor and he'd promised a return of 20%. And working on the basis of it sounds too good to be true, it probably isn't. Uh, I went and approached this particular company. It was a company called IPD Securities. Uh, 
and quickly discovered that here was this new company in this sort of investment environment that was taking place in 1987 where the stock market was going ballistic. Mm. This is sort of about July 1987. And they were preaching what I thought was common sense. They were saying that before you make an investment, you should go through a process and have a financial plan. You should look at the goals and objectives that you have, uh, match them up with the resources, and develop a financial plan. I thought that was eminently sensible. Uh, and so the investigation didn't take long. And in fact, I went back to work, gave my notice, and joined the company. Mm. I joined IPD Securities. And I joined them about September 1987, which was an interesting time to get into a business where you're trying to help people to help themselves by giving them sane, sound, sensible advice on what to do with the investment resources, uh, because a month later the stock market crashed. (laughs) And uh, I've always been able to say that none of my clients lost money in the stock market crash in 1987, but that was... Probably principally because I didn't have any clients. <laughs> but it was still an interesting environment to go in there and talk to people about what to do with their money. And that started the journey. And um, from my perspective, it became very positive because unlike the police and the Justice Department, where I was dealing with people that weren't easy to deal with, that they were... Um, pretty grumpy by the time I was dealing with them because they'd lost money Mm. Uh, and if I was dealing with the people that attributed to that um, they weren't particularly nice either some of the con people I con men and women that I dealt with over the years are people that couldn't even lie straight in bed they Mm. were that um, that bent but in the financial planning industry from those early days and at IPD Securities and then moving on to my own business, New Zealand Financial Planning, and on to where I am now at uh, One Plan for Retirement, I've always been able to deal with people that are people that you'd want to deal with. You know, they're very positive, they're very trusting, uh, they want to get advice, uh, they're prepared to pay a reasonable fee for that advice, and you become over time, the trusted advisor. So you're building a relationship. And so the business is not about giving investment advice. It is about giving advice, but it's about the relationship around that, about helping people to help themselves. Sure. And and that's a big part of it. People often come into the office and ask what return they can get. And you always say it's not the return on your money, it's the return of your money. Well, that's initially what happens when people come along because they don't really know what to expect. They've got some funds that they're wanting to invest. They're looking for some advice. And what drives them probably is that return. Hmm. In the current environment, of course, people are saying, well, I'm not going to get anything from my term deposits. Hmm. Uh, Money in the bank's not giving a return. I'm looking for something different. If I was an investment advice, I suppose you'd sell them the, 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 the best thing that's going in the market at that point in time. Mm. But because I'm not an investment advisor, I'm a financial planner, I'm actually more interested in 
you know, their vision, their values, their goals. And if they've got this money, how does that money help them to progress that vision, those values, and those goals? And that's quite a turnaround for them. So part of the initial two-hour discussion that you would have with clients, and sometimes it's less, sometimes it's more, is really getting to the real core of why they're there. Mm. Why is it important that you get a bigger return on your money? And how realistic is that taking into account your risk temperament or risk profile? People sometimes want a high return but no risk, Mm. and, and that doesn't happen. True, it's a good balance. Um, and, and and with your experience, obviously, you talked about the corporate fraud unit and it was um, people just obviously not being aware of the what's good advice and bad advice. What would be common red flags that a person looking to find a trusted advisor should keep an eye out for? Well, it's that if it sounds too good to be true, it probably isn't. And from the point of view that... Uh, if something is said to you and, and it sounds exciting, I'm, I'm going to give you a 10% return on your money. Mm. And some people go, oh, that sounds fantastic. That's what I'm looking at. That should be a red flag because you go, well, where's that going to come from? If you're a conservative, normal you know, mum and dad that's looking to um, fund their retirement, you're not going to want to take a lot of risk. And I mean, the question is, you know, when people say, um, what sort of return am I going to get? And you say, well, depends how much money you're prepared to lose. Mm. If the answer is all nothing, mm. well, you're going to have a fairly balanced sort of portfolio, aren't you? You're going to be fairly conservative. You might not have all your money in the bank because that's not necessarily the best place, but you will have a good percentage of an interest-bearing investments, and then we have, it'll be balanced off by some growth investments in, in property or the share market, because there's only four places that mm. you can, you know, cash, bonds, property, and shares. Um, everything else is, is quite speculative. I don't think going to the racetracks is a sensible way of investing for retirement. No. And all those people who bought uh, the, uh, was it Powerball or at the lotto, I mean, uh-huh. you know, that was a donation, not an investment, because <laughs> lotto will spend the money and help the community, and that's fine. Um, but it's not an investment. So when people listen and hear a high return, like 10%, when inflation's like 1% to 2%, and the official cash rate's 1%, they should work out that there's a level of risk involved. Mm. But they don't want to hear that because they're already spending the money. You know, they're, they're feeling quite excited. And that allows these fraudsters like uh, the chap Ross from, um, David Ross from Wellington, who ran a, a Madoff-type arrangement, teaming and lading, mm. you know, promising everyone 10%, but he needed the money coming in to pay the 10% on the money he had. And when it all comes to a, a, an untidy end, there's a lot of money. Was I think sort of hundred million dollars. Yeah, a lot. And uh, there's been a few examples that you shared over your time. Obviously, when you first came in, the first month of business, obviously the stock market crashed. But is there other examples that you've seen that maybe necessarily the high return wasn't the indicator of the risk, and that when you dug a little deeper? 
there was finance companies I seem to recall. Yeah, well, that's the, when you mentioned that that's, the finance companies came immediately to to, to uh, my thoughts because at that time the finance companies were offering say nine and a half percent when the bank was offering seven, so there wasn't a huge disparity. Mm. And it's not that people are greedy, I think, but they are. You know, very keen to get the best return they can, but sometimes losing sight of uh, of what's going on around them, and they'll believe what they want to believe. Mm. So the finance companies out there were offering nine and a half percent. The bank was seven. Uh, they were doing truckloads of money, and you know, whether it was Bridge Corp or um, Capital Merchant, there are a whole range of these names, and people like myself knew that there had to be a problem. There had to be a problem, but it was really hard to work out what the problem was. Mm. You know, how were they doing this? They all went out and got groups like, there was a group called Rapid Ratings that would do a ratings report. And Mm. when I looked into that a little bit deeply, it was based on the financial statements of someone like Bridgecourt. You know, they've had three years of positive returns. You know, very profitable company, so they got the big tick. Mm. No one asked what was being done with the money that was taken from the public. Mm. Bridge Corp sent me a little letter saying that if I put my clients into their uh, arrangement for a 26-month period at 9.5%, I'd pick up a 3% commission. Well, you know, I thought, gee, that's a lot of money. Mm. And then looked in through the bit of paper in the bin, but some advisors would have done that. Mm. And uh, the problem with that, of course, is they didn't understand the risk of what was happening with their clients' money. And had they done so, they would surely have never done it because the money was all lost. Mm. What we found out later on was that these finance companies were taking the money, effectively lending it to a developer who didn't pay interest on the money, but the interest rate was something like, 18.9%, there was a procreation fee, that's like a, a 1.5% finder's fee mm-hmm. that they had to pay, but the money was never paid, it was all rolled up in the loan, so there wasn't any cash flow coming back to groups like Bridge Corp or Capital Merchant or these other ones to fund the interest on the money they borrowed, so they needed more money coming in to not only lend, but to fund the interest on the money that already borrowed. So it was kind of like a teaming and lading arrangement. But, you know, it could have been kosher. But when they run out of money, and if you don't have deep enough pockets to do this, uh, and the markets change, it all came to a screaming halt because the developers' developments failed in most cases, which meant that they didn't have the money to repay the debt and because the money was repaid, the depositors lost all their money. Mm. Had the depositors known about what was happening with the money, they wouldn't have wanted 9.5%, they would have wanted 15 mm. And of course, when you're talking to mums and dads, you say, well, you're going to get a return of 15%. They're not that stupid. They'd mm. say, this must be very risky if the bank's offering 7 And the answer always was. What was bad about the finance companies was that they, in my view, misled the public 
by offering a return just enough above bank interest rates that people thought must be okay. Mm. And they had these very solid-looking presentations and prospectuses and, you know, looking very, very like pillars of the investment or financial uh, society, but they weren't. Mm. Yeah, they were just, um, in my view, conmen. And some went to jail and some didn't. But the cold comfort to the mums and dads who lost money at that time. The good thing for our clients is we didn't put our clients into the finance companies uh, because we didn't understand where the return was coming from. And as a result, our clients didn't lose any money. Mm. And that's the thing. It's a, a common narrative we have to overcome in the sense of people having those experiences or knowing someone that's been through that. But if, if you do have that balanced approach where you diversify, because um, quite often uh, it's a bias in humans, it's called the hindsight bias, where let's say, for example, you're an advisor and you try and do more and you get involved. Um, the reality is that you're, you're self-fulfilling um, your viewpoint. So you're actually not necessarily right, but you're reinforcing the viewpoint you have. So there was something you did quite early on that they're starting to implement now was to have that degree of separation where the advisor that has the best interest of the client actually isn't the one that's uh, heavily involved in the investment side of things. You have a, a custodial trust and you differentiate yourself from that. Well, right from the early days, I recognised that my ability is to work with people. Uh, my ability is not to be able to time the investment markets. So I don't see myself as being an investor or investment guru. So you then have to say, what value do you add to the, the conversation? And the value that I think I add is getting people to go through that retirement or financial planning process and thinking about, can they achieve particular outcomes with the resources they've got? Mm. And remember that many of the people come to us now and say, you know, I need $60,000 to fund my lifestyle or 90000 as a client the other day. Now, they don't necessarily know the number. Mm. You have to help them work through the number, but they kind of know that they can't live and maintain the lifestyle they want on New Zealand Super. Mm. So it's how much above that. And so there's a, a big gap of uh, knowledge there. The, the answer's there. They just haven't kind of dug into it mm. because they're not generally that financial or that analytical mm. to be able to track down how much I spend each week, each month, each year. But they'll have a general idea. And given that some of the people are coming to us either pre or just post-retirement, they're quite aware that the income's either stopping or stopped. Mm. And that would kind of make you feel a little uneasy. So you're thinking... Um, I need to replace the income I used to have uh, to fund the lifestyle I currently enjoy, but I actually don't have much of a plan or idea where that money's coming from. Mm. And that's what we do is we make the invisible visible through that planning process. For the advisor, though, the advisor has a huge role to act in a way that is ethical and professional in the interests 
of the client because you're in a very powerful position. You're the advisor with the knowledge. Uh, people are generally um, influenced or able to be influenced by what you do. And if you do the wrong thing, it'll end up very badly for the client, who you should care about and who you should put before they put their interests before your own. Mm-hmm. And if you don't, I don't think you've got much future in this business. So in the early days, what I wanted to make sure was because of the background I'd had within the police and the fraud that the client's money is protected. Because that's the bit that's at risk. So how do you protect the client's money? Well, clearly you've got to give good advice, but on a more basic scale, you make sure that the money goes in the direction it's supposed to go. Mm. So you don't have the money banked into your bank account. Mm. Even if you're honest, um, there's always a temptation, I suppose, that money could go in a different direction. And Mm. I've seen that. Mm -hmm. Uh, So what we did is we set up a custodial trustee arrangement in the early days. Uh, When I started at IPD, basically they were just giving advice. Mm. And instead of taking commissions, they were taking a fee. They would promise that they would review the portfolios. And I said, well, how are we going to do that? Because the clients have been here and then they've gone away. You need to have some continuous arrangement. You need to have a monitoring process, which you get paid for, so that therefore you're obliged to provide that monitoring and, and continual supervision. I looked across the ditch to Australia and there was a company there called Monitoring Money. And this particular business had a model that I thought was really good. They had a custodial trustee to hold the money. Uh, They had an administration group to keep score. And they had investment specialists. They were all retail institutional fund managers. And I thought that was really good because it separated the advisor from the money. Mm. So the advisor wasn't trying to stock pick and I'll tell you I'll buy this and sell that and bits and because that's nonsense. The advisor can't do that. Mm. Um, that would be a, a a bit of a point. If you went to an advisor and they said, look, I'll tell you what, just give me your money and I'll buy this and I'll buy that and sell this and sell that and make you a lot of money, I'd run. Mm. Yeah, that's a bit like the um you know, those traders on the currency markets, what are they called day traders, yeah. where they trade at night. You know, they're all going to make lots of money and all go broke. Mm. And just imagine if they're using your money, let alone, you know, you'd be hopeless. So the, this monitor money company, uh, we looked at what they were doing. We were linked in those days, IPD Securities, to a group called IPAC. It was an Australian research group, an excellent bunch of guys, and they helped me understand the value that you can give people through a proper planning process. So we set up the same process. In the other days, the guardian trust is the custodial trustee, guardian trust were the administrator, and then we used all these retail fund managers mm. so that we could take a fee for the implementation of the plan. We could take a fee that was tax deductible for the ongoing monitoring, send out quarterly or six-monthly reports, um, recommend changes, the clients would sign the changes off, and it, and it kind of worked like that for a number of years. And that model has really persevered to today, and that's mm. now the industry standard. What's yeah. changed is computerization is 
enabled uh, a situation which is we see now with KiwiSaver, where the money can be pooled mm. and you can invest as a group. Mm. So instead of everyone having individual certificates and units and bits and pieces, the money's now pooled. But it's the same process. You know, custodial trustee, uh, an administrative platform, and the money's now invested in a wholesale type environment. Uh, and the computerization means that the whole thing can be unitized and clients can say, oh, I've got this amount of money, but it's broken down over this investment strategy with these various institutional managers. And that's what KiwiSaver does, doesn't it? Yeah, same. So th- there might be a few words that people don't quite understand, like custodial trustee. Would you be able to talk on the point of what types of trusts there are or the benefit that the average New Zealander may have in using trusts or not using them? Yeah, well, a custodial trustee, and you're quite right, you've got to watch yourself in this business that you don't get into jargon too much. But a custodial trustee means that if I've got money and I'm wanting to invest it, I want it invested effectively in my name. But to do that, I have to, and if I'm going to use a process like what we run here at One Plan for Retirement or, or the other good financial planning firms out there, essentially you don't want to end up with a whole lot of certificates and bits and pieces. You want someone to run the administration service and give you a report from time to time. So there needs to be a centralisation of the process. So by using a custodial trustee, that just means that the money goes to this group and you use it. Company like Guardian Trust, Mm -hmm. been around a long, long time. It could be the public trust. um, Where it's quite clear when they receive the money, it is not theirs. They are not the beneficiary of that money. Mm -hmm. They are a trustee. We call it a custodial trustee because the money goes to them and from them out to the people that the money is eventually invested in, which will be an institutional money manager. It could be like in the New Zealand share market. It could be people like Devon or Harbour. You know, there's been other names in the past because these organisations change a little bit. When they receive the money to invest as part of their pool, uh, it's not their money. Mm. They're investing on behalf of the custodial trustee and the custodial trustee is holding that money on behalf of the beneficiaries, which are the clients. Mm -hmm. So the money is always the client's money and if the uh, fund managers go broke, the money doesn't belong to them and it's not available to their creditors. If the administration platform goes broke, the money doesn't belong to them or, and therefore it's not available for their creditors, it all comes back through to the custodial trustee that has no liabilities. Mm-hmm. And again, if they were a business like Guardian Trust and that went broke, the money that's in that custodial trustee arrangement doesn't belong to their creditors. Mm-hmm. And then it all gets directed back to the investors. So the investor's risk is the market risk. It's not the risk that someone could steal their money or you know, someone goes broke and the money gets you know, lost in a receivership or liquidation. Now, that's not always easy to explain to people. Mm. So that's where this concept of the trusted advisor comes to. Mm-hmm. 
you know, because it's not my name on the on the bank account, and it's not my name on the share certificate. It it goes through a pool. Mm. Now, that must be easier for people to understand now, because how many people are in KiwiSaver? Yeah, it's the same sort of model. Mm. You know, there's not an investment in the share market with your name on it. It's done through a KiwiSaver pool, and it all gets unitized, and you can say, I've got so many units in that fund, and that's worth so much dollar on today's market price. And the, the, so that's the custodial trust. So yep. That's quite different mm-hmm. um, for from the trusts that we sometimes give advice on in respect to family trusts, because a family trust is just a structure through which you can invest. When we give planned, uh, prepare plans for people, and, and you're starting to look at the investment side, you go through a process of saying, well, what's the appropriate structure, what's the appropriate strategy, and what are the appropriate products to make up that, that investment strategy? The structure is just about the legal ownership. So if it's your investment, you're an individual, you invest in your own name. But you could invest through a family trust where you're the trustee and you've got other named beneficiaries. Mm-hmm. Or if you're a mum and dad type investor, it'd be a mum and dad's name or joint names. But it could be in what we call tenants in common, an equal but undivided half shares, because there may be other reasons why you don't want the money to go to the person that's left, mm. uh, because that's what happens with a joint ownership. Uh, you could invest through a company, you could invest through a partnership. A family trust is just one of those structures where there's a separation between the legal owners, the trustees, and the beneficial owners, which are the beneficiaries. Less and less popular these days because the law has changed over the 30 years I've been in the business. We used to have uh, arrangements like estate duty back then. It's gone. Um, used to worry about the super surcharge for people receiving New Zealand super, but losing it because they had other income, gone. Uh, used to worry about um, the rest home subsidy. You know, people wanted to guard their money uh, in case they went into rest home, so that's not available to fund that, gone. Uh, <laughs> The thing that hasn't gone, of course, is family trusts are useful as a protection against creditors, if people are professionals and could be you know, corralled into losing the assets because a partner or someone else within the organisation has done something foolish. The other one, of course, is relationship arrangements and the other one would be where you have uh, children or beneficiaries that are going to be dependent and they need a structure that you don't want the money going to their name, but you want it to be in a structure where other people, the trustees, uh, work for their benefit because that person's the beneficiary and they're the ultimate uh, recipient of the money. Mm. And that's a very, um, it's a big challenge we face in the sense that a lot of people feel as they need to know about finance, but they don't necessarily want to. So, so all this information should be something we all know, in a sense, because it, it's going to enhance our lives. But there's there's a certain resistance around that to actually to communicate it to people when they're open to receiving that information. And I guess that's, that's sort of the benefit where we come in, in the sense that people, they want to have enough of an understanding to know things are okay, but they want to have that separation where they can live the life they want. 
in a perfect world, everyone would have that knowledge, wouldn't they? Yeah. You know, in a perfect world, you, you wouldn't need to get advice and legal or accounting matters because you'd know what the law was. Uh, you wouldn't need advice on financial matters because you'd be right up to the play and you'd understand uh, the relationship between risk and return. You'd be able to do effective budgeting. Uh, you wouldn't buy things that you don't need to mm. impress people you don't like. Yeah. <laughs> so the reality is that that's not the case. And there's been continual calls for teaching financial literacy at schools. For probably the last seven years, I've been doing classes at Mount Albert Grammar mm-hmm. to the 500-odd students who are in year 10. I get to spend about 40 minutes with a group of 50 at a time. That's as much as the school can allocate for something like that. And I think that's better than nothing, but it's a bit of a shame Mm. because that means you've only got 40 minutes to establish some very basic principles of, of money management. And uh, that's probably better than nothing. And yeah, really, it's a bit like driving. You, know, mm. you think that one of the reasons New Zealanders are poor drivers is you always ask who taught them how to drive. It was mum and dad. Yeah. So then you say, but who taught mum and dad? And then you get a big blank. Mm. And the same is true of money managers. A lot of the kids pick up by looking at mum and dad and they mm. can pick up good things or bad things. So I think there is a, a need for... Uh, financial literacy and education in that area and I know that the retirement commissioners trying to do their best and mm. there's a lot of the institutions are trying to do the best but you can take a horse to water but you can't make a drink mm. so people can hear all this and it just goes straight over the top because they just don't connect they're just not interested Yeah, and that's the reality of life people are interested in things they're interested in and not interested in things they're not but of course, when it comes to money and come, comes to uh, retirement, the big R word, um, they do need to take an interest. Mm. And, and sometimes, of course, if they leave it too late, it can be incredibly frustrating. I mean, at the end of the day, people need a certain amount of money to live on. Mm. There might be some people quite happy being beneficiaries for life, but they're a very small portion of because yeah, they're not able to do the things they want to do. Mm. Um, people go out and get a job. The more they earn, the more they spend. Over time, if your income goes up, so does your expenditure. And you begin to develop a lifestyle that you just take for granted. And there is an expectation that you'll be able to not only enjoy that lifestyle, but improve it at some point in time mm. when you stop paid employment. Some people are realistic and realise they've got a problem. Other people are deluding themselves. Mm. And uh, I don't know, they, they probably still believe in the tooth fairy because <laughs> there is no, you know, there's no free lunch in the money game. If you haven't prepared yourself for retirement and you come up to the day you get the DCM, don't come Monday, mm. and you haven't put in place an alternative income or cash flow source, you're in big trouble. Mm -hmm. Uh, It means in this country you don't have to least sleep on the streets because you will get New Zealand super. As an individual, what's that worth? 
22,000 a year. As a, as a couple, it might be $32,000 a year. This is net. Uh, enough to exist on, but not enough to live on. Mm. So if you've gone through life on a reasonable income, you, know, you don't have to be rich, but a, you know, a reasonable income, it might be you know, as a family income of $100,000 a year, mm. um, plus or minus, and you've enjoyed that lifestyle, which has probably cost you the best part of sixty to 65000 and you've got to a point in time where the, the kids are no longer there, if you've been smart enough to buy a house and you've repaid the debt, which people tend to do because mm-hmm. if they don't, the bank gets pretty upset with them. Yeah. So they've kind of got a little bit of compulsion going on there. But you come up to retirement, having spent sixty to $70,000 a year on your lifestyle, and suddenly you have to now live on 30000 32000 I'll tell you what doesn't make you feel good. In fact, it makes you feel very, very uncomfortable. Mm. And clearly that is probably unplanned. Now, that's going to improve over time because of things like KiwiSaver. But what I've learned, though, is that the more people earn, the more they spend. Mm. So those numbers may still be outside um, the ability of people to fund if they don't have a a proper process if they haven't thought it through, mm. if they haven't got a plan. And even if they have thought it through but not got a plan and they come to retirement and suddenly, bang, there's a whole lot of money from KiwiSaver or a superannuation scheme, if they don't get advice, that money can very quickly get lost mm. because people are very poor managers of their own money. Mm. And my experience has shown that people are very poor investors of their money. And the most recent example, only 10 years ago, is the finance companies. Mm. I saw people sell good assets like you know, a rental property and put the money into a finance company to lose the lot. If they'd come to someone like myself and they'd got a boring balanced portfolio reflecting their risk profile, that was going to give a return, maybe 2 or 3% above the bank uh, over time, that would have been fine. Mm. But why didn't they do that? Well, they didn't want to... Perhaps they didn't know what they didn't know, mm-hmm. that they needed a plan. Perhaps they just weren't prepared to pay for a plan because there's a lot of people who won't do that. Yeah. Which I understand a little bit. But, you know, if you are getting value for money, it's worth paying for. And uh, you know, I often say that, you know, if you had an electrical fault, would you do the electrical repairs yourself? <laughs> Probably not. You'd be a black mess in the corner. Now, with financial matters, you won't be a black mess in the corner, but you will be broke. Mm. And once you've lost your capital and you're no longer employed, you've got no recovery. So, you know... The need for people to make sane, sound, sensible decisions with their money has never been more important because if you go back two generations, my grandmother and both my grandmothers lived in council flats and were able to live their life quite comfortably in a New Zealand super. Mm. Why? Because they had very low expectations. Mm. They didn't want to travel or didn't expect to travel. They didn't expect to, to go out and be entertained. They didn't buy nice things. They didn't drive motor vehicles. 
their lifestyle was what it was, but it's different for their children. Mm. I tell you, it's a great deal different for their grandchildren. That's me. And I look at my children, their great-great-grandchildren, and um, yeah, I couldn't see my 33-year-old daughter wanting to leave the, the, the lifestyle that um, my grandmother lived. Mm. And so the expectations keep going up and up and up, and therefore the numbers keep going up and up as mm. to how much money do you need sensibly invested to fund the financial independence gap. And what I mean by that, it's the gap between what you want when you stop <coughs> paid retire- paid employment and what the government of the day might give you. Mm. The financial independence gap, the fig. Mm. The difference between what you want and need, and remember, whatever you want, you need, mm. and what the government of the day will give you. I don't think people quite realize how significant that problem is. So there was a survey done in 2013 and 65% of people over the age of 65 live off that 32,000 and 22,000 only. It's the only form of income. So it is something that we need to bring more to the forefront. And that's why we actually do this. And why you have clients calling you while we're doing the podcast. So (laughs) we can pause it and you can take it. Well, uh, yeah, as, as you would have noticed, we temporarily pause. Um, Greg had a call, and that's a big part of what we do is the service. I mean, what you have is with corporations, um, maybe they could get a lower price point, but the, it seems to be a fade in terms of service. You call places, and you get put on hold for 20 minutes. So apologies for that, but we've got to make sure we're doing the best we can. Particularly for our clients. <laughs> yeah. So that is, I mean, it is a huge problem. And people don't realize. Um, but like, as we as we come close to the, the, the tail end of this podcast, is there any sort of um, points you want to leave people to just to ponder, just at least get the gears going so they don't end up like that 65%? Well, I think it's not that difficult to do. It's just about perhaps having a clean sheet of paper and, and writing down what are the things that you want to achieve in life. And there'll be lots of things that, are not financially related. Mm. But money does play a part in that. Uh, Everyone has a lifestyle that they want to enjoy and they probably want to improve that. But if you can quantify how much money you need to maintain that lifestyle and think about where that money is going to come from, that Mm. employment in the first instance where you're working for money, but there'll be a point in time where you need to let your money work for you. Younger people have got a huge advantage that I didn't have or my generation didn't have because a KiwiSaver is an immediate incentive to save for retirement because you put in 3% or 4% and and your employer will match that at this moment up to 4 so, or up to three, I think, isn't it? Yeah. Up to three. You choose to So, the, four. you know, if you think about it, you put in three, they put in three, that's 6% of your gross, mm. a little bit from the government with the rebate, you're getting pretty close to 10% of your net. Mm. If you save 10% of your net over a 35 to 40 year period of time, compounding returns, and that's the wonderful thing about compound interest and the eighth wonder of the world will ensure that your money is at a level that 
you can sustain that lifestyle. Mm. So that's all young people have to do, is do KiwiSaver and keep going. Of course, if they become self-employed, they've got to watch that because mm. you don't get that employer contribution. Uh, and in the meantime, say, well, there's my retirement sorted out. But in the meantime, uh, look, where do I want to live? Do I want to be a renter or an owner? Mm. And there's no right or wrong answer. But if you're a, a renter, you're going to need more money aside in retirement to pay the rent. Mm. If you're not a renter and you're an owner, um, you may have a little less financial freedom along the journey as you're trying to swallow this huge elephant mm. called a mortgage. Mm. And therefore, it's actually kind of important to look at not overreaching yourself and, and um, being unable to enjoy the lifestyle that you want mm. and being at risk if something goes wrong, losing everything. Mm. I mean, that's probably the conundrum for young people is that uh, to buy a house today is probably easier than it was in my day because your finances available, mm. but the amount of money that you have to borrow is fairly eye-watering. Yeah. Even though the interest rate is still low, it still has to be repaid. Mm -hmm. So it's not something that you're going to do over a short period of time. No. And if you swallow too much too soon, it could sink you. Mm. So it's about living within your means, mm. buying a place that's adequate for you now and you can afford it, and then when you get that sorted, you go and buy a better place if you want to. Mm. So for young people, it's not too hard. Uh, it's going to be incredibly hard for older people. And, and when I listen to the younger generation, they say, oh, it's really hard for us, but you, know, you guys had it lucky. Yeah, maybe we did, maybe we didn't. But, you know, we had a lot of uncertainty and we didn't have a lot of help along the way. Mm. KiwiSaver is a huge help for the young. Uh, we didn't have that. So most of my generation coming up to retirement don't have much in KiwiSaver because it has been going long enough. They probably don't have a superannuation scheme because they got canned. Mm. When we were younger, we were encouraged to buy insurance-type products um, where there was a bit of tax relief in those days, but that went. And those products have not been very effective because the mm. costs associated were horrendous yeah. and people didn't actually continue on with them or didn't at least inflation index them, which is what happens with KiwiSaver. Yeah. As your income goes up, you're saving more. So inflation is working in your, uh, in your corner, if you like, of the ring. The people who are sensible are the ones who bought property because inflation worked for them. But there's a lot of people coming up to retirement or in retirement who didn't buy a property, mm. who are still renting, but haven't got enough money aside for that. And that's where we're starting to see, I think, and we'll see more of it, of people you know, at, in poverty in relative terms at an older stage of their life. Mm. Because, you know, they didn't have the knowledge, they didn't have the discipline, they've spent everything they've earned. Yes, they'll get New Zealand super, mm -hmm. but they'll need extra money from the government to fund the rent. Mm -hmm. And if they're renting in Auckland, you know, that's a huge amount. And at some yeah. stage, you know, that's going to be a huge problem for the government because what's gone is all the social housing that was there for my grandparents who had nothing. Mm. 
but running in council flats, uh, which would be condemned today, I imagine, because they didn't have en suites and they didn't have this <laughs> and they didn't have that. And, you know, the kitchen looked pretty basic and the wash house was probably outside next to the toilet. Um, but people don't, that would be unacceptable today. Mm. So it's, a, it's, it's a kind of really an interesting period of time um, that people will reap what they have sown, but if mm. they haven't sown, there's going to be a huge social issue coming up. And I, I don't know what the answer to that is, but it's something that um, current and future governments are going to have to address. Mm. And this is the thing, I mean, there's a skewed demographic where it's an ageing population, um, and are we able to fund it? Um, oh, yeah, that's a big, you know, the, you know the, all us oldies are going to be at the mercy of all new young people. <laughs> that, that's quite frightening. The unreliable but, millennials. Yeah, yeah you know, I have to, pick, have to build a wall around my property. Um, <laughs> or, or, or have more hens. <laughs> yeah, you got a few. Easy. But <laughs> the, you know, the opportunity is there that um, people like myself can't help everyone. Yeah. But we can help those who come to us uh, with a clear set of goals and objectives, have a, a vision of where they want to go and what's important about money to them, and have got the resources to be able to maintain a standard living that they're going to be comfortable with. Mm. And you don't have to be wealthy. Mm. The, you know, that's the, probably the thing people think um, they don't have enough money to fund their lifestyle. Mm. And and many people will come into a meeting along those lines and they put, well, I don't have enough. But they go out with a big smile on their face yeah. because I can explain, actually, as long as they do these several things, mm. financially they're in good shape, they're financially independent, they're not going to run out of money before they run out of life and they're going to be able to maintain the lifestyle they want. Mm. And that's really what it's all about. It is. And, and now as we wrap that up, I hope at least uh, the listeners, what they can take from this is to start thinking about it. Even if it's a napkin in a restaurant, start creating a vision. And whether it's coming in to see us to talk about it or, or another person in terms of that trusted advisor, the way they look through that filter we just said. Um, but just get started. You'll be surprised. The eighth wonder of the world, how compounding interest can work for you. So uh, look forward to hearing from you um, again next episode Memoirs of a Mentor seems to be the name we're using at the moment so we'll keep it up and uh, yeah we'll see what we're going to talk about next week thanks guys